Hi there, it's Megan Mitchell from Agents of Change. Thanks for checking out my podcast. If you enjoy the content, please check out my ASWB test prep courses for the bachelor's, master's, and clinical exams. Each Agents of Change course includes more than 30 key topics that closely match the ASWB KSA content areas. Our content is great for both auditory and visual learners and includes video walkthroughs, supplemental materials, hundreds of practice questions, and twice monthly live study groups with me. You can learn more and get 10 free practice questions at agentsofchangeprep.com. Hi there, it's Megan Mitchell, the founder of Agents of Change Social Work Test Prep. And today I'm here to bring you a revamped, updated social work shorts on a preview of some ASWB sample practice questions. If you are looking for more ASWB exam prep content, go ahead and head on over to our website at agentsofchangeprep.com. We really do have something for everyone from free to paid content, and we have tons of information for you to get more acclimated to be prepared to sit for your ASWB exam. So let's go ahead and jump into some tips for approaching practice questions. So practice questions, why are they so important? Content is great for this exam. You need to know content to be able to answer the questions correctly. However, completing practice questions is just as important and I would make the case that it might be more important than just studying the content. And why is that? It's going to give you practice. Practice, 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 practice. And for this exam, content is not enough to help you get a passing score. Not only do you need to know the content, you need to be able to apply the content and you need to be able to utilize it in practice questions, in clinical vignettes to help you piece together the information. So it's very important that throughout your studying, you are completing practice questions. I 100% recommend completing at least one full-length practice exam so that you are comfortable with the way the questions are worded, you're comfortable sitting for the entirety of the four hours, and so that on test day, you have some practice under your belt. So let's say practice, 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 practice questions are going to be really helpful. I also want to preface it by saying, if you ha are taking practice exams or you're working through practice questions, a solid, good quality practice question is going to have a rationale as to why the question is correct or incorrect. If you are finding questions that do not give answer rationales, it's not a good question. You need to know why the answer was correct, and you need to be able to use that rationale to help guide you. So you really need to make sure that you are finding quality, solid practice questions to work from. Here is my advice as you are working through practice questions. Read each question two times through. And you might be thinking, I don't have time. There's 170 questions. I don't have time to read each question through twice. Why do I suggest this? Because you're going to pick up on details that you missed the first read through. When we are in the testing environment, it's very high stakes. We might be more anxious, our adrenaline might be, you know, operating at a high level. So we might be more prone to rush. So if you read each question twice, you're able to do a sweep a second time to make sure you did not miss anything in the first read through. 
If you are someone that tends to rush or go fast through tests, um, so say you're someone that's finishing in an hour, in an hour and a half, that's pretty quick. Slow down. Read each question two times through. See if you missed any details at first glance. And a lot of times I will have people get answers wrong. They go back, they reread it, and they say, oh, I missed that. I, I just was going too fast and I missed a very important detail. Always ask yourself after reading the question, what is this question asking? If you're not able to understand what the question's asking, you need to go through and read it so that you do understand. And some of these questions can be longer, they can be dense, they can be confusing. This is where you really want to rely on some sort of breaking down question strategy. So here I suggest using the five W's approach. That is an agents of change approach that we teach. And if you are looking for information on the five W's, we have a blog post, a podcast, and a YouTube video on it. So make sure you have some sort of strategy for pulling out important details and being able to synthesize information as you're reading practice questions. Lastly, read all answer choices before selecting an answer. This is also a good tip if you're someone that tends to rush. So you don't want to automatically say, I know the answer is A, I'm going to select A and move on. Every word matters on this test, and there could be the slightest variation in answer choices. So you want to make sure that you're reading all answer choices before selecting an answer and thinking about all of the answer choices. Similarly to how you pull out information in the practice question stem, and the stem is just the, the wording that it is giving you to answer the, the practice question. You want to make sure that you're equally spending your effort reading the answer choices before jumping to a conclusion, selecting an answer, and moving on. Also, do not leave any answers, un an any answers unanswered. You will get it wrong if you leave questions blank. So if you are stuck, make your best guess, but please select an answer because even selecting your best guess is better than leaving it blank. So make sure that you are not leaving any questions blank because those are going to be points that you get off. So let's go ahead and do three practice questions together here. What do we know before I even read number four? It says, what is the most, and most is in all caps, what do we know about most questions? What do we know or what do you, when you see a most question, what do you think? What are like some of the tips and tricks for most questions? Best sometimes, yep. Yeah? And to me, when I see most, it means all of these could be feasible, but one is going to stand out as being better than the other, right? Most appropriate, best. So number four, what is the most effective strategy in community organizing for social change? Very small, very succinct question stem here. What is the most effective strategy in community or community organizing for social change. A, prioritizing, oh, I can't talk today. Prioritizing large-scale events to take place in community spaces. B, engaging project experts in decision-making. Or C, building partnerships with local stakeholders and community members. And remember, all of these can be used in community organizing, but what do you know that informs your answer choice to make your decision here. And notice there's only three answer choices here. 
um, you will see some three and four answer choices on the exam. They started rolling that out in 2013. So what do you know about community organizing? What do you know about social change that informs the answer choice that you picked? So we kind of just talked about this before when we were doing community stuff, but you have to include the community. You have to include the community when doing community organizing. That's the whole purpose of that field, right? Is you want to organize community members to create you know, movement and policy work and advocacy work. So C is correct, but we're gonna do process of elimination. Um, oh, sorry, that should be green. Prioritizing, prioritizing large-scale events to take place in community spaces, you might do that, right? That might be a benefit as you want to actually have events in the community and you want them to be on different size scales, but that's not why, um, that's not the most effective way that we would um, be able to elicit change, right? And question for you, if we don't build partnerships with the community, do you think they're going to let us have events in their community? No, right? Like we have to build the trust. We have to build the rapport so that we can do some of these different things. Engaging project experts in decision-making. Who are the experts here? The community members. You might definitely have a consultant or um, a policy person or a politician, but they would be one member of the team. We don't want just the experts, quote unquote, in those areas making the decision making, it should be holistic and the voices of the community members themselves should also be included as well. Any questions on that one? I mean, that's that kind of just once again gets to the basis of working with community. What do you do? Engage them, engage them, engage them, engage them. Okay. Now, um, I want to make this all on the same. Number five, and I'm not gonna show you the answer choices just yet. I'm gonna read it, we're gonna break it down and then we will answer. Sarah, a social worker is conducting a home visit to assess the family dynamics of the Johnsons who have two children aged seven and 10. During her observation, Sarah notes that the parents are very responsive to their children's emotional needs, but also maintain clear and consistent rules. They encourage open communication and provide reasons explanations for their decisions. Based on Sarah's observations, which parenting style are the Johnsons most likely using with their children? Um, before I even read you the answer choices, what do you what do you know about parenting styles? Do you remember the different parenting styles and like what comes up for you here? Because this is going to ask you, here's a little scenario, what type of style do they have? And I'm going to give you the answers and just the answer choices in just a second, but what do you know about that? Someone said going off of attachment theory, it, it seems the children have secure attachment. That's absolutely important to know. So now we will get into the answer choices. So which parenting style are they most likely using? Authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, or neglectful, and why?
So you have to know a little bit about the different ones. What we'll start from the bottom up. What what would be characteristic of neglectful parenting style? It is not neglectful because they're very in tune with their kiddos, but what is neglectful? Not attuned to them, not engaged in their needs, right? We know children have basic needs. All humans have needs, but parents are responsible for caring for their basic needs, right? So neglectful would be not being tuned into that, not providing for those basic needs that they, they need, right? Um, and also with neglectful, you do see uh, what, if you do have a client who has a parent with a neglectful parenting style, what might you see from the kiddo? What might be some um, characteristics that would demonstrate that their parenting style of their parents is neglectful? Yep, appearance could be big for this one, right? Because if they're having their basic needs not met, so um, you'd wanna be checking that out. They could be very withdrawn, poor communication. Um, they could be emotionally dysregulated because they're not used to having someone when they are dysregulated, tend to them. Very good. What is a permissive style of parenting? What is permissive? Passive, absolutely. Um, not really setting boundaries, right? What the child wants, the child gets. No boundaries, absolutely. What could be problematic about this parenting style? Because I think some people like very much struggle with this. They're like, I don't want to be too overbearing with my children, but I want to make sure that they know that I respect their voice and their say, but why? what could be problematic about permissive? Boundaries is huge, right? There could definitely be enmeshment here, right? And we know developmentally, children are not at the same developmental level as their adults. So they're not gonna be able to realistically make some of those those decisions because it's not developmentally appropriate right so like children need rules imagine if they went to school and there was no structure and no rules it could be really 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 problematic rules and boundaries actually teach children like how to engage in the world and and what they can expect it sets expectations for them um authoritarian what is an authoritarian style very, very rigid, right? The parent is in charge. You must follow these rules. Very little say from the children. What I say goes type of thing, right? Very, very strict. Very little flexibility as well. It's very much like you. it's either this or this. Um, what could be problematic if a child is raised with a parenting style that's more authoritarian? They could have, they could be submissive. They could have low self-esteem. They might actually start to rebel when they get a little bit older. They might not have that self-advocacy. They might not use their voice. They might not know how to navigate conflict, right? So um, 
that those are the three other parenting styles. The correct parenting style here is authoritative. And that's kind of the balance, right? The balance between there's rules and there's boundaries, there's clear expectations, but the children also have a right and a place to communicate and be heard and the parents are attuned. So um, authority, I mean, I don't like to say there's any right or wrong, but studies have shown that parents that have an authoritative parenting style um, the outcomes for the children um, in the long run for their well-being are the best. Any questions on that one? Okay. And I asked you throughout, like, what were the different behaviors you might see from a child? Because you might get a question that asks you like that. Like, here's, you have a child that's like, displaying blah, 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 blah. Here's a little bit. What parenting style might they be um, most exposed to? Okay. Number six, a social worker is working with an elderly client who has been diagnosed with advanced dementia. The client is increasingly unable to make informed decisions about their care and well-being. What should the social worker prioritize in managing the client's care? A, a make decisions with the medical team on behalf of the client. B, seek to safeguard the client's interests and rights involving family and legal guardians as appropriate. C, transfer the client to a facility with a higher level of managed care, or D, refer the client to a specialist who works with patients with neurocognitive conditions. So here I want you to read this question, answer, and tell me what comes up for you here. There's This is an ethics question. What ethical value is important to note here and why? What ethical principle is involved here and why? Okay, so for this one, I'm gonna go through the five W's with you all and just pop your answers into the chat. Who is our client here? Who is our client? We have an elderly client. So usually that means around 65 and up. Um, that's our client. What is going on here? What's the problem? What's the problem? There's some advanced dementia. What else? Unable to make informed decisions. Yep. Where are we? We don't know. So the where is not important here. We don't know what setting we are in. Why is the social worker needed in this situation? Why does this matter? Why, why would we need to make a decision here? Why would we be involved? Because we have to advocate for the client it's become aware that the client has some advanced dementia and is not able to make these decisions, right? And when, what do we know when a client is not able to independently make decisions on their own? What do we do then? Because we should respect right to self-determination unless they're a danger to themselves or others, or they don't have the capacity to do so. So what do you think here? 
A, make decisions with the medical team on behalf of the client. B, seek to safeguard the client's interests and rights involving family and legal guardians as necessary. C, transfer the client to a facility with a higher level of care. Or D, refer the client to a specialist who works with patients with neurocognitive conditions. And what here it says, what should they prioritize? So that's basically what does prioritize mean? What's the most important thing to consider? Okay. Do you think it's important to refer this client out to a specialist at this point? No, right? Um, there's nothing here that suggests that a specialty practitioner is needed. It's not needed. Um, it does also does not state anywhere that the social worker is not able to work with this client in some capacity. So that's not necessary. Um, do we have the right to um, transfer the client to a higher level of managed care? Like, do we have the authority to do that? Not at this time, right? Um, we don't know who the client has to be like the power of attorney to make medical decisions, who is the, the, the client's guardian, right? We don't have that right to do that for C. And then do we also right now know that we have enough information to make a decision with the medical team regarding next steps? No, we might have to do that, but not in this case, right? We don't know who's still, um, who, who is going to help this client make the informed decision. So B is correct. Seek to safeguard the client's interests and rights involving family and legal guardians as appropriate. Um, so any questions about that one? Obviously we want to involve kin, family members first. They might have a legal guardian. There's usually a lot of steps that would go into this, um, but we are going to give that as the next option because we know that this client is um, becoming less and less able to make those informed decisions. If the client is not able to make an informed decision, like in this case, what would be important to note? Like, so we have to go to the family and we say, you know, um, we have to make this decision. What do you think as a clinician, as a practitioner would be important for us to tell the family? What do you think would be important for us to do? Yes, remember we're there to advocate for the client. So we might have to advocate and say, you know, this is what I think is, the client would want. What, what are the client's wishes? In a way that is safe, right? Like we know that safety is always number one. We'd also want to document any interactions that we have, right? You'd want to make sure that there is somewhere that says who the family member is or who the legal guardian is, right? Because that can get very tricky. The client might have an advanced directive that says, you know, this is what I want for end of life care if, if it's coming to end of life. So just all things to consider um, if you are in a situation like this. What do you do? going a little bit farther, you have a client that is unable to make these decisions and they're becoming very upset and they're like, I wanna make these decisions, don't tell me what to do. What do we do then? Because this happens, right? I wanna make these decisions, stop babying me, stop telling me what to do. We'd have to work collaboratively to figure out what is the best decision for that client if they are not able to make that decision? And also having a conversation 
like in a way that's appropriate for that client as well. But safety always has to be considered. We do not respect right to self-determination if it's going to put the client in danger, um, someone else in danger, those type of things. So safety, safety, safety first. And these can be those tricky situations, right? Um, they can be really tricky because we do want to respect right to self-determination, but we know with dementia and some um, neurocognitive diseases, they might not be able to problem solve or make these decisions in an informed way. Okay. If you are looking for more ASWB study content, like I said at the beginning of the video, check us out at agentsofchangeprep.com. If you have any questions, you may email us at agentsofchangeprep at gmail.com. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in. And remember, this test is hard, but you can do hard things. You got this, and I commend you on taking this next step in your studying journey. Thank you.